Welcome to the Governance Podcast, the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Billy Christmas and I'm a lecturer in political theory here at King's. Joining me today is my colleague Dr David Thunder, a researcher and lecturer in political and social philosophy at the Institute for Culture and Society at the University of Navarra in Spain. He is currently preparing two book manuscripts, tentatively titled May I Love My Country? In Search of a Defensible Patriotism and Sovereign Rule and the Stillbirth of Freedom, a preface to confederal republicanism. Welcome, David. Thank you very much, Billy. Um, so yesterday you gave a, a talk here at the centre, and um, <coughs> an important element of that talk was a, a certain uh, critique of something you call sovereignism or the uh, sovereign uh, imagination, the sovereign imaginary. Um, and the title of that talk was "Political Order After the Sovereign State." Um, so what is what is it that you take to be sovereignism, and um, why is it that you're so critical of it? Sovereignism, for me, is um, something that is so natural now to political philo- contemporary political philosophy that it's almost like the air we breathe. We hardly notice it because it's implicit in a lot of uh, discussions of the state and of political order. Um, but in fact, it's a development of uh, the modern era, and um, it, it's the, the idea of sovereignty as general all-purpose authority that is monopolized by a political actor within a territory, that idea as the supreme authority, as an unrivaled authority, um, is in fact a modern invention and arose from the efforts of absolutist monarchs to assert their authority in a very complex social landscape in which you had a feudal system with many overlapping and multiple authorities. So it was in their interests to develop a doctrine of sovereignty which basically gave them um, supreme authority in a territory. So it's something that's a, a theoretical um, and kind of ideological development um, mm-hmm. of the early, the, the starting in the early modern period. So, mm-hmm. um, so is your your criticism of it primarily in terms of as a theory of political organisation, as a kind of approach to um, to justice, to normative political theory, or? Is it a, a critique of, of empirical reality? Is it that you think that this is the system we do in fact have and it's bad for a number of reasons? Yeah. Um, well, my ultimate concern is a practical concern. My ultimate concern was, is with how political ide- ideology translates into political institutions and political practices. So my concern is a pragmatic, practical concern uh, about the quality of life of ordinary citizens. Um, and there is a paradox at the heart of my argument Uh, namely that um, the doctrine of of sovereignty can never be fully realized in a political institution Uh, because of social complexity. They can never really master um, social complexity uh, and social dynamics to the extent that they actually exercise that monopoly over social order or social regulation. Um, However, the, the effort to realize that ideal, the attempt, much like many ideologies, the, the, the effort to realize an ideal that is unrealizable um, can have negative consequences for the lives of people and communities. And so it's, it's the fact that, that sovereignty acts as a regulative ideal for state action that is my issue, uh, because I think it's an inappropriate and counterproductive regulative ideal that ends up damaging the social order of um, small-scale communities in particular and, and medium-scale communities because they find that their, their internal, uh, what I call their normative orders, 
end up being colonized um, by by that of the, the state, the sovereign state. Could you could you say a bit more about how um, how we, how it is that you think this kind of aspiration to sovereignty um, is is so harmful to these kinds of associations? Sure. Um, yeah, basically, uh, the aspiration to exercise um, general purpose and supreme um, regulatory authority within within region, um, what it ends up doing is giving presumptive supremacy to the customs, the the culture, um, the the idea of justice, and the idea of social order that is embraced by uh, state institutions. And so, because they have a presumptive supremacy over rival uh, rival social orders, um, when they come into conflict with those social orders, and when that sovereign uh, sovereignist doctrine is armed to the teeth, armed both with bureaucratic administrative uh, institutions and also with fiscal powers and financial powers, um, it has a competitive advantage when it comes into contact with rival normative orders, and and so it tends to. It may not destroy those normative orders. It may tolerate certain aspects of them. But, but the general trend would be towards gradual colonization. That is to say, remaking them in its own image and likeness. And one of the points I made in the talk yesterday was that because the state is, um, is a single institution, or let's just say a cluster of institutions, of relatively centralized institutions, um, the rules that it makes are necessarily uh, general or universal. And so they cannot adapt themselves to the special conditions of, small, of, of associations, each of which has its own necessary, its own requirements for order. So what do you, what do you think is worth protecting about associational life? Or what would you say to someone who wants to take the kind of opposite approach and says, um, well, these kind of small associations, you know, they're undermining the authority of uh, the national government, and that undermines our sense of national identity, undermines kind of a a more kind of cosmopolitan and open-ended form of human cooperation. And really, these are just kind of old-fashioned things which we can now do away with now we have nation-states. And uh, we can all interact on kind of equal terms under the protection of the national government. Um, What what do you think is worth protecting about associational kind of maybe perhaps small-scale and diverse life like that? Yeah. The first thing to say is that associational life is not in and of itself necessarily always a good thing because you can have good and bad associations, you've got harmful or noxious associations, you can have more or less just and more or less oppressive associations. So it's not an uncritical celebration of local associational life. Um, Rather, it's to say that um, the kinds of creatures we are as human beings, we require socialization within face-to-face communities in order to um, develop our capacities as human beings, in order to um, enjoy uh, worthwhile goods such as friendship, uh, the pursuit of uh, the truth, uh, the pursuit of knowledge, um, the transmission of knowledge to future generations, um, and, uh, and, and indeed handing down of traditions that can uh, contain within them a valuable way of life. Uh, this is a McIntyrean sort of point that that that, that scale matters, and that um, if you don't have face-to-face communities, um, it will be very difficult to uh, hand on, uh, let's say, a rich way of life um, within the context of more impersonal 
institutions which treat us simply as individual members of a state, for example, um, we may be able to gain certain kinds of uh, uh, material welfare, um, uh, even although I would say in the long term that's questionable whether that's sustainable, but let's just say, assuming that the state did provide that material welfare, uh, other types of well-being that have to do with uh, common go- meaningful common goods, deliberation, um, and the pursuit of these common goods, whether they be, be friendship or, or excellence in some profession um, or in some craft, these sorts of goods cannot be uh, promoted by large-scale bureaucratic institutions. Okay, so... So you start out with this kind of tentative um, tentative defense of associational life that while just any old kind of form of associational life is not always and everywhere good, it is a necessary condition that we are able to form and live in associations. And that the, the sovereign state or the kind of aspirationally sovereign state is um, parasitical or kind of cannibalistic upon that. So if the goal of associational life is this, this um, kind of uh, common flourishing, you said, goods such as friendship and knowledge, generational solidarity and things like that. Um, is there a need for kind of, for external regulation of associational life in order to not guarantee, but certainly regulate and give us give give some kind of predictability that associational life will not go, um, you know, the the very to the worst possible case scenario that it could and become incredibly you know oppressive or um, or something Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. I believe that um, the ideal that I that I'm developing in my book um, is actually what I call consociational republicanism, and that ideal um, assumes, um, well, it argues for what I argue for is a polycentric uh, social order, um, and that means essentially that different social groups have responsibility for regulating different aspects of social order, uh, but those regulatory regimes are very often overlapping. They may not be always overlapping because some regulations may actually apply in a very, very localized domain, and there may be very little overlap with other other regimes. But uh, but characteristic of an interdependent and, I would say, to some extent, globalized society, uh, we move in different social circles. We move, we participate in a, a wide range of different associations, uh, and um, so associational orders regulatory orders end up um, overlapping in interesting ways and this provides a certain kind of check upon associational tyranny um, and uh, there are there are two types of checks that, that occur to me right now one type of check upon associational tyranny would be where um, the same social domain is simultaneously regulated by more than one regime so for example in a federal policy you can have uh, municipal governance, regional governance, and federal governance happening within the same territory, right? So then they have to jostle it out in in their respective courts. Um, And no no one of them can simply have a total monopoly over that that territory. And the other check on associational tyranny is uh, a right of exit or a right of mobility. Um, and, and, And basically that means that if you live within a geographic territory in which you don't like the way your life is being regulated, you can move to a neighboring territory or, or, or let's say a neighboring canton or a neighboring uh, municipality 
um, where, for example, you prefer the tax regime there than where you have now. Um, in the context of the sovereign state, uh, or the, the aspirationally sovereign state, to the extent that it exercised a fiscal monopoly over an extended territory, um, just as one example of the form, forms of, let's say, unfreedom that you can, you can find in a, in a sovereign territory, uh, it's very difficult to escape its fiscal edicts or its fiscal uh, imperatives. Uh, so if it decides to set the tax rate through its parliament at 40% or 50%, there's very little that the citizen can do about that because there's not, there isn't a competitive environment. Yes. Um, so it sounds like you're, you're, you, you do want there to be political institutions to provide that kind of regulatory framework Absolutely. for associational life. Absolutely. Um, but it's important that it be fragmented perhaps in a, in a, in a federal way. So yeah. I suppose, do you, do you see federal systems such as uh, Switzerland, the United States, Germany, um, I suppose also India, Nigeria, is that, uh, is that um, a viable model for what you would call a kind of a polycentric polity? Um, well, they definitely embody elements of the polycentric polity um, and each of those examples you give perhaps um, embodies to different degrees the, the kinds of features that I would want in a polycentric polity. Um, the United States is an interesting case because there are quite strong, let's say, sovereignist imperatives at work in the federal government of the United States um, in terms of public finance, commercial regulation, and so forth. Um, and even in terms of constitutional jurisprudence and, and, and regulation. Um, so nonetheless, the states do have quite strong prerogatives, the individual states. Uh, the, the difficulty here is to what extent, and that's what's something you need to look at on a case-by-case -case basis, to what extent that polycentricity actually trickles down to the level of the municipality, the township. Um, and I think there is a tradition of self-government in many of the townships of the United States, as I've been told. Um, but to what extent they have genuine fiscal autonomy is another question. Um, I, I think the states have, the individual states have quite a bit of fiscal authority um, that may be in some cases overbearing with respect to the fiscal authority of municipalities, for example. Um, but this is this is an empirical question. If I were to look at ask, if we were to ask which which country comes closest to the ideal that I am aspiring to, that I would like us to aspire to, I would say Switzerland probably comes closest. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because fiscal authority is in the hands of the local cantons. And uh, let's just say it is distributed because the federal regional levels also exercise fiscal authority. But the fiscal power is, um, the majority of fiscal power remains in the hands of the, can of the cantons. Um, and also, they have a lot of control over local regulation and local, let's say, lawmaking. Um, uh, municipal regula regulations are very important in the cantons. And, and it is a highly dem democratic society in that sense. Um, so you, you mentioned that fiscal authority is, a, is is particularly important. Could you say why you think fiscal authority in particular has this importance? For yeah. Um, for me, fiscal authority has special importance because as embodied beings who realize our aspirations through uh, material resource, with material resources, uh, which could be as basic as a house, a home, um, <clears throat> uh, we cannot 
develop our ideals of human flourishing without channeling material resources, utilizing material resources in order to put them, in order to implement their ideals. And the problem is <coughs> that when um, governments, uh, let's say, exercise a monopoly over a large portion of our material resources, um, then uh, they are not, they do not have an incentive to control their spending habits. And they can, um, they can basically <coughs> waste a lot of public resources and simultaneously drain associations of potential resources they could use to implement their projects. Mm. And so I, I believe that the tax rate in the Western world <coughs> is far above what it needs to be in order to sustain our uh, well-being. Um, uh, the public aspects, certain public aspects of well-being, certain aspects that only political governments can handle. So public goods, that sort of thing. Certain kinds of public goods, um, um, non-excludable goods, mm. such as, I guess, road infrastructure, uh, water system, um, and security. Um, well, they're partially non-excludable. It depends on, this, especially yeah. in urban areas. In urban areas, yeah. So the emphasis on, on kind of localized fiscal authority is not necessarily a kind of um, a claim about entitlement to wealth or anything like that. It's not a kind of a libertarian claim. It's um, it's more um, it's more kind of based on an empirical worry that more well less localized, more centralized, and distant authorities, when they have fiscal power, um, are able to squander that money or to engage in kind of clientelism. Um, or the kind of kind of forms of redistribution which no one is really in favour of, whereas at the local level, um, when uh, the people say the citizenry um, observe corruption or clientelism or, or or just spending on things that they don't really value, they are able to quite quickly exercise some kind of voice in the matter, whereas it's much harder at the national level. Is that fair? To say? Basically, I think accountability at the local level for tax spending. And um, <coughs> is 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 one of the major issues uh, that that the, that the governments should be accountable to answerable to their ci the citizenry for the way they spend public money, mm. which in fact is the money of taxpayers, the money of citizens. Yeah. Um, and and I think the more in a highly centralized tax regime, it's it's actually very difficult to exercise that kind of accountability um, because because. Because it's because all of the spending is very complex and and it's pooled together and it's and so it's very difficult to to sort of uh, piece it apart and to understand exactly what the tax priorities are um, and also at a practical level it's very difficult for local citizens to exercise any meaningful influence over national politics. Yeah, so they have kind of a let. They may have less knowledge about what's going on at the at the central level, and also less of an incentive because yeah. they have their power is diluted. Yes, their vote is against everyone else in the country. They have a lot less leverage. I mean, in fact, potentially an entire region or an entire, uh, let's say, uh, political unit of the country or or territory, uh, such as municipality, could be overwhelmed by the sheer demographics, and could be outvoted by the rest of the country. So you could potentially have a, a taxation policy that destroys a local industry, mm. um, but is approved by the majority of a country. Mm. Um, and this is one of the, uh, in fact, if I could mention Brexit in this context, it's just interesting to me to see how the priorities of different parts of the United Kingdom are so different. 
yeah. and how their interests can diverge. And perhaps in the case of Brexit, it's not practical to, it may not have been practical to break down authorities locally, um, but uh, it does make one wonder whether there are other issues of domestic policy upon which there could be divergence and there could be advantages to local adaptation. Uh, in other words, different localities having different policy priorities and, and techniques mm. and, and so on. So the, the extent to which um, the polity is, is decentralized sounds, and as opposed to being sovereign and, and being polycentric, it sounds like this is definitely a matter of, it's a matter of degree, right? Um, it's not like there are, you know, there, are, there are states that are sovereign, there are states that are polycentric. It's, it's always going to be a matter of degree. It's, it's, it's always a matter of degree. <clears throat> and the reality is that in practice, um, a certain amount of fragmentation is uh, probably inevitable in a large-scale polity. I mean, in the sense that it's going to have different administrative units. Yeah. Uh, but and, and, and you could even say, even in France, like a highly centralized country like France, um, the administrative units will have certain prerogatives, certain amount of autonomy. But ultimately, they serve at the pleasure of the sovereign state. And the state can regulate and alter their jurisdictions <coughs> at will, pretty much, um, it may be bound by certain constitutional, um, let's say, constitutional rules, but they are the rules of the state um, as such. Um, I think the test of whether a, a system is truly polycentric, or, or let's just say um, a kind of paradigmatic case of a highly po polycentric system would be a system in which um, units of the system have a right of secession. Because if there is a right of secession, that demonstrates that they have a high level of autonomy. So, it, in a sense, it's, you can't really tell how polycentric a system is based on the extent to which it's it's decentralized, because every system depends upon there being tiers of power. The question really is, which direction does the kind of authorization go in? Does do the localized units get their legal authority, I say, from above, or do they get it from below and then pass that authority upwards towards the top? Yes, and I think another another way of thinking about it is how are disagreements between the units settled? How, how are they habitually settled? Um, if the top level tends to win out in those disagreements and tends to impose its own uh, imperatives, its own preferences, uh, then that is, a, that is a sure sign that it's not a genuinely polycentric system, that mm -hmm. the, the system is formally maybe have multiple centers well, the centers are in fact being controlled from the top. Yes. Um, so it's about control. Polycentrism is not just the idea that there are multiple administrative units. It's about where control of public administration actually lies. Mm. Um, and if it's at the center, if it's at one center or a, a, a few centers, that's a monocentric system <coughs> or tends towards monocentrism. If, it's, if, if the controls are at the periphery, then that would be a genuinely polycentric system. You you want to see these units kind of in in competition with each other, or certainly um, engaging in some kind of bargaining or negotiation um, with one another. And you you think that would be kind of a healthy a healthy symptom of the system. Yes. Um, rather than simply appealing to upward authority to settle matters. Yes, and and I would even say that um, ironically, a sovereigntist political system can actually become, be so inflexible that it can accelerate social conflict. 
because it's a bit like um, a stick that doesn't bend. I mean, either it breaks or it stays straight. Mm -hmm. There's only two options. And it's something like that you could say is the sovereignist system because the um, because because of the the habit of sovereignist thinking and the doctrine of sovereignism, which is often constitutionalized, um, central governments have a strong incentive to insist upon the supremacy of their normative order and their decisions. And when they come into collision with local dissenters. Um, they don't have resources to bargain adequately with those local dissenters because they feel compelled to assert their sovereignist prerogatives. Mm. And an example of this is Catalonia in Spain, because the outcome of that, it is a fundamentally a political and cultural conflict. But um, because the Spanish constitution um, attributes sovereignty to the Spanish state um, and considers the, the autonomous regions of Spain as emanations of the sovereign state. Uh, a con the conflict with Catalonia <coughs> actually resulted in Spanish, the Spanish government sending in troops, sending in uh, military backup, so to speak, uh, national police, um, in, order to, uh, in order to prevent certain kinds of illegality, illegal votes in Catalonia. But it, it came to a kind of a standoff between the Catalan government and the Spanish government, partly because there is no way to renegotiate the constitutional kind of the constitutional um, framework of Spain without um, renouncing the principle of sovereignty, mm. um, and, and that is a fundamental commitment of the constitutional arrangement. Yeah. What I'm advocating is constitutional schemes in which renegotiation of jurisdiction is something that doesn't destroy the constitution so it's always kind of it's always on the table it's always on the table mm. um there's always a possibility of renegotiation so your um, your kind of image of, a, of of how constitutions ought to be is that they should be sort of open-ended in a way and always mm. potentially open to renegotiation and, and revision from from sources of authority which the which the constitution may not recognize at any given time it should be open to recognising new sources of authority. Yes. Um, I suppose the the question that a perhaps a constitutional theorist um, within the mindset of the sovereignist imagination might say is, well, that sounds perfectly nice, but who who maintains the open-endedness of the constitution? Who ensures that it is always open to new sources of of legal authority? Yes. Um, well, I, I, I believe that the basic constitution of a polity, of a, of a federal polity, um, would, be, uh, would be political in, in character in the sense that um, it's, it's both its reach and its legitimation would, be, uh, would have a territorial character. It's just so to clarify, I want to clarify um, and fundamental renegotiations re of um, renegotiations of a constitutional charter or a constitution, um, I believe, would require uh, would give uh, privileged a privileged position to political governments to the political governments that constitute the the the, 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 the polity, um, and uh, ideally. That those negotiations would have to be multilateral or bilateral, as the case may be. 
In other words, the interested parties would have to agree to come to the table and uh, renegotiate the terms. I simply don't believe that it's necessary to have a single supreme actor who oversees negotiations. Uh, two or three or more negotiating parties are perfectly capable of nominating a third party mm. to uh, adjudicate or to, let's just say, uh, facilitate and mediate negotiations. Mm. They don't need an all-powerful sort of overarching party mm. that can intervene at any moment with power uh, in order to carry out constructive negotiations. Yeah. Um, and and the, the world of markets and business, we get these kinds of negotiations all the time of contracts and renegotiations of contracts. But for some reason, we have a hard time thinking that this could be a viable model for political negotiation. Sometimes some people have difficulty with that. Yes. Yeah, so that's a, it's a good a good example is of of a form of kind of I guess polycentric authority or kind of open ended authority is, is private arbitration, which is a very, very common practice. Mm. Um, but do you not think it would be fair to say that the reason that that is effective, that nominating with where two parties bilaterally nominate a third party to enforce their negotiation, the reason that that is effective is because um, uh, it takes place with uh, against the kind of the backdrop of an already kind of, in a sense, monopolized legal order that says, by the way, if, if you sign contracts where you nominate third parties and then you renege after that, we will then come after you. Uh, we will enforce um, your agreement with that third party. Um, I, I don't think that the integrity of contracts um, necessarily relies upon a single um, a single uh, enforcer, uh, sovereign enforcer, mm. who can um, adjudicate contractual disputes. Mm. Um, in the international arena, for example, contracts are negotiated all the time between uh, between businesses, and um, and and those contracts, um, the businesses basically that's against the backdrop of multiple national governments. Uh, that could be implicated by those contracts. And um, no one of those national governments necessarily has exclusive jurisdiction over those disputes. Um, As far as I'm aware, companies can choose the jurisdiction under which their dispute will be, be, you know, uh, adjudicated or arbitrated if necessary. Um, But I think just to get away from the premise that we need this overarching enforcer for contracts to be to be uh, valid. Um, we definitely do need there to be penalties for non-compliance with contracts. Yeah. I think that's very important. <coughs> but one of those penalties can be a loss of reputation, a loss of credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you renege on your contracts, uh, you will get a very bad reputation over time. Mm-hmm. So there are reputational costs to, to being a bad player Yes. Uh, and acting unfairly that shouldn't be over overlooked yes. um, and also you may be able to mutually nominate uh, third party enforcers and and choose certain penalties and and uh, uh, but in that situation you don't have a single uh, sort of automatic enforcer within a territory necessarily um, I mean in, in practice of course in a federal polity you probably you're you're going to have disputes from time to time over whether the local, the regional, or the federal government has jurisdiction to enforce a contract. 
but that's what laws are for, and that's what lawyers are for, right? Yeah. For trying to work out the details of yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to push back against this one more time, and then we'll move on to a different subject because I, I, I particularly find this this part of it very interesting because uh, this is an issue I try to grapple with. Mm. So the um, reputational cost of reneging on contracts is certainly real and definitely has um, definitely induces compliance in a lot of scenarios. But typically, we I think we should expect um, the disciplinary power of repeated dealings and reputational effects to occur with with things like um, business business people or kind of economic actors, entrepreneurs that have an interest in securing uh, long term cooperation um, with predictable kind of in- to yield predictable income flows. But what about when people and that and that certainly explains how international tra- international um, business kind of operates without it being very obvious that there's a single jurisdiction overarching them. Um, but what about when you're not getting into you're not getting into it for a long term income stream? You're you're you you're not interested in making money. You're interested in committing genocide, say. And you take power in a region, and you want to um, um, you and you want to exterminate a, a, a tribe of people, an ethnic group or something. And yeah, maybe you've signed up to some UN charter to say that you won't do that, but I'm just going to, who cares? I'm just going to break, I'm just going to renege on that agreement and no one's going to enforce it and I don't really care about my reputation. What I care about is exterminating this tribe. Um, what about those kind of situations when people are not being, um, I know you're probably not going to like this phrase, but not being rational economic actors, um, but are being, you know, power-hungry um, and aspire to be in a position of kind of unchecked political power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess uh, one, the first point to make is that having a centralized political apparatus in which power is concentrated at the center is actually an invitation for power-hungry people to try to get leverage over the entire society. So a federal uh, structure is actually a check on power-hungry individuals who want to monopolize uh, public power and public authority. The second point to make is that um, the, the regulation of civil life, and civil such as contracts and, um, let's say, uh, local disputes, that are within the bounds of civility, you might say, to do with uh, property rights and so on, is quite a different matter than the regulation of outright violence and crime and criminality. And um, basically, I'm not. I I I I, I totally accept that we need military. Uh, we need a military. Uh, we need an army. Generally speaking, we need a police force. We need a security system. And uh, that security system can be, to some extent, decentralized because I think local areas can have their own security systems. Mm. Uh, But when you're dealing with, it really depends on the level of the threat as to what degree of centralized security you need. So, for example, a standing army, which interestingly was one of the big debates about the founding of the United States, was whether we should have a standing army or not and whether this was some threat to liberty to have a standing army. Um, as opposed to local sort of uh, militias. Um, Well, having a standing army in a modern context probably makes sense. um, And and, and also having robust police forces uh, and and quite sophisticated intelligence services. Um, But I think that one of the false 
uh, one of the fallacies of the argument for the sovereign state is to assume that because certain aspects of security need to be centralized, mm. therefore every aspect of public regulation needs to be centralized. So I want to make a break between those two moves and say, yes, I concede that certain aspects of both external and internal security would logically need to be centralized, not all, but some, um, but it wouldn't follow from that, in my view, that every aspect of regulation inevitably must mm. be centralized. Um, the important thing is that the use of security forces remains, uh, that there are che uh, local checks on that, and that the, the central government, in fact, is, is, is being controlled uh, from the periphery, and that the periphery has the power to remove its, its, its allegiance to that central government. Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, so I want to move on to uh, just a, kind of two other strands of this work um, before we before we finish. Um, so when we talk about polycentric governance, and, and you mentioned that it's very important to localise, particularly fiscal control, an argument for that is often that when you um, when you kind of shrink down the uh, size of, of jurisdictions or kind of geographical um, geographical legal monopolies or not quite monopolies. What you do is you make exit less costly. So um, if I don't like um, some new policy that Parliament puts in place, I can move um, to a country in the EU or I can move somewhere else, and that's just incredibly costly, and I'm not going to do it. Um, whereas if um, I really just don't like um, some, uh, the tax code or something or the um, um, speech codes or something of Hackney, I can just move to Islington, and that's actually something that you could do. That's actually a reasonable thing to do. Um, but uh, an important part of your work um, previous to these books has been on um, citizenship and, and something like democratic participation, which emphasizes rather than the ability to kind of vote with your feet and just leave um, um, situations that you don't like, um, it emphasizes the importance, the ethical importance, perhaps, of, of participation. So could you, um, could you perhaps say something about your work on citizenship and how you see it as... Um, as, as, as speaking to, uh, to your current work on the, um, on the critique of the sovereign state? Yes. Uh, my book on citizenship, which is called Citizenship and the Pursuit of the Worthy Life, which was in 2014, that, that book is, a, is, is, a, is quite a conservative book. What it does is it assumes the structure of, the constitutional, of constitutional democracy in the Western world. Um, it assumes a relatively centralized democratic constitution um, and it asks the question can citizens um, live a worthy life within that kind of context political context what would it take for a citizen to uh, to govern their life responsibly and to develop uh, the full panoply of human virtues within that political context and my conclusion is that it would be difficult, but not impossible, um, given the, the, that those kinds of political structures. Citizens can, with a lot of effort and struggle, can overcome certain obstacles to, 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 to flourishing and self-government. Um, but I, I did come to the conclusion that it was too conservative as a project, from my perspective, and that what it led me to was to question whether that institutional context is an appropriate one or a fitting one for self-government. 
and and for indeed living a flourishing life and and uh, acquiring the goods that can only be provided by local communities. So that led me to rethinking of the institutional scheme, and that's what led me to my current book, in which I've uh, in which I'm developing an alternative model of constitutionalism and of democracy, which is as we have just said is is polycentric, mm. um, and. And, and I would say that right now where my thinking stands on this is that self-government and participation in public institutions takes two forms, if you will. One is strictly political form in which I'm trying to influence public policy of political governments, territorial political governments. And the other is associational participation in which I'm trying to influence the shape and policies of a non-political association. And for me, that form of participation is an exercise in self-government as well. And often one that is, by some democratic theorists, is not sufficiently emphasized. Okay. Um, so that, that segues quite nicely onto the next question. You mentioned, you referred to your view, you see it as a form of republicanism, namely con- consociational republicanism. So in um, my background in political contemporary political philosophy, republicanism is a, um, refers usually to neo-Roman republicanism, which um, sees the most important goal of the polity as um, a form of liberty, as non-domination, which typically I take to be very critical and suspicious of group life, of associational life, um, and sees um, the republic, uh, a republican state, as something which liberates you from these kind of parochial forms of, of domination. Um, so how do you see your own republicanism, consociational republicanism, in contrast to neo-Roman republicanism of someone like um, Pettit? Pettit? Yes. Um, I've, I've read some of Pettit's work on, on, on republicanism, um, and uh, I think there's a lot of value to the idea of non-domination, um, the absence of arbitrary interference by, by a third party, uh, including the state, um, is, a, is a useful way to think about freedom, uh, but it's also an incomplete way to think about freedom okay. um, because freedom is only meaningful, is only valuable to the extent that it, um, it is used to uh, achieve worth, human goods to flourish, to develop our capacities to enjoy life. Um, So freedom is not an empty ideal for me. It it is oriented towards some form of flourishing. And and so the mere absence of domination for me um, is not sufficient in and of itself to redeem the value of freedom. Um, And uh, the form of republicanism that I would endorse isn't exactly neo-Roman republicanism. It's probably more what we might call civic republicanism or classical republicanism or neo-Arsatilian republicanism, if you will. Greek, not Roman. So more Greek than Roman, um, although it's probably artificial to separate them completely because there's a lot of overlap. Uh, I mean, when I read Cicero, I really do see a lot of marks of classical republicanism, civic republicanism, seeking the good, the common good of the polity and so on. Um, so uh, that form of republicanism emphasizes the need to develop a certain certain kinds of virtues and attitudes and public spiritedness, um, but also as an intrinsic value, as intrinsically valuable qualities, and as elements of a well well lived human life. 
that kind of republicanism extols the value of self-government as something that is, um, in fact, enhances the, the value of a human life um, and is not merely instrumental. Where I differ from classical republican and civic republican tradition, um, in and I think it's a significant difference, is that um, I consider political institutions to be only one element, one vehicle of self-government and not necessarily the most important vehicle of self-government. For me, associations, non-political associations, in many instances are actually a more important vehicle of self-government than political associations. Uh, They invite more participation, Mm. they provide more channels of participation um, and, and of rational dominion in the social sphere than uh, political institutions. Mm. Political institutions provide a framework for the self-government that occurs in, in associations. Uh, but in realistically, I'm fully aware that political institutions are only consistent with a limited level of participation, even in a local mm. level. Uh, so if we were only relying on political institutions for self-government, we'd be in very bad shape. Okay. So um, Iris Marion Young has a... a, a had a, a criticism of republicanism and republican philosophy more broadly, um, which was something along the lines of um, the public spiritedness of uh, a participant in the republic um, was very homogenizing concept, and what she saw is that it was very uh, kind of masculine and white um, and Eurocentric uh, concept, which which kind of de facto excluded all these forms of, of difference, as she puts it. Um, it excludes women, it excludes different ethnic groups. Um, do you think that that homogenizing uh, tendency of Republican theory um, is part of what you see as the um, the danger and the kind of cannibalism of the sovereign state upon associational life, or is what Marin, um, Iris Marin Young would call it um, kind of different groups? Uh, y- yes, I do. Um, I-, I-, I think that um, if we... F- concentrate the ideal of self-government upon political agency or agency within the context of political structures, mm. that there is a danger that we will over, that we will, yes, that we will homogenize the ideal of self-government by attaching it to the activities that occur in the context of those particular kinds of institutions, mm. and that we will deprecate or underestimate the value of, uh, let's say, non-political associational action. Um, And um, I I, I would say that uh, it's not uniquely a problem for the sovereign state, necessarily, that particular problem, because even a federalized republicanism, if it focused exclusively on the political channels of self-government, could... Uh, let's say, obscure the value or underestimate the value of um, of agency within non-political associations and the different forms that self-government can take. Uh, so Vincent Ostrom, when he talks about American federalism, um, he, he is quite clear that self-government must be exercised not only in political governments, it is also an ideal way of life mm. that is instantiated in many different non-political associations. A, a separate strand of your um, critique of, 
of the sovereign state. Um, I'm not sure how much of the book is dedicated to it or if it's a, a more of a passing thought, but you mentioned it in your talk yesterday. You said that um, the, the notion of a sovereign state to protect freedom was a kind of um, deduction from the, the ontological or moral individualism of, of the Enlightenment. Could you, could you say more about why you think that um, moral or, on, or ontological individualism is, is problematic and why you think it entails the idea of, of sovereignty or the need for sovereignty? Yes. Uh, basically, I noticed a pattern in um, defenders of the sovereign state starting in the 17th century um, and moving forwards. Um, and, and this pattern... I, I think was is particularly marked in Hobbes, but you see it in Locke, um, and you see it in Kant, and you see it in Rousseau, um, and basically, and you see it in John Rawls and in many contemporary political philosophers. The pattern I noticed was that uh, when they discuss problems of civic order or political order, they treat those problems fundamentally as uh, a kind of um, coordination game played by a set of individuals, by a set of individuals. So um, it's not that they've eliminated groups completely because they assume a single group, the group of individuals who will form a state. Mm. The but people. The people. Mm. But the jungle of associations that actually constitutes that group, that single group that forms a state, that jungle of associations is given passing reference, passing recognition in Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and Kant, um, and Rawls, and other theorists. They, they, it's not that they deny that individuals have groups and belong to groups. Rawls is quite clear that we have background cultures and that we belong to churches and we have different types of conceptions of the good. Yeah. But when it comes to setting up the problem of political order, they um, they simply barely discuss the dynamics of intergroup coordination. Mm. And I find that astonishing. I find that astonishing. I was very surprised by it as a pattern. And I, I had to scratch my head and wonder why intergroup coordination was left out of the picture. Yeah. And um, the conclusion I came to was that they were in the, th in the throes of a kind of individualist image of society yeah. and that, that for them the imagination that drove their projects, the social imaginary that drove their projects was an individualist imaginary in which it's individuals who need to assert their rights in the context of a very large group. So on your view do you think it's fair to say if, you know, if we must do kind of state of nature social contract theorising the state of nature is not a homogenized and yet disorganized people um, it's a set of very different um, forms of pre-existing social organizations families tribes groups religions and, and this sort of thing yes the, the basically state must emerge as a result of these groups coordinating with each other that's rather right. than an that, entire that's, that's the proper way to construe a state of nature if you really want to set up a state of nature yeah. problematic as that construct is going to be yeah um, you might as well build in some some of the relevant empirical features um, that are besides the fact that they're individuals uh, were trying to cooperate. Um, so Hobbes, for example, recognised heads of households 
And I think, as far as I'm aware, he considers those individuals to act as heads of households. The same um, in rules, I think, which is yes, interesting. A feminist yeah, critique, yeah. yeah. And um, but 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 the question is, why, why, why should we stop at the level of heads of households? Yeah. Why should that be the unit, the only unit that enters into the equation when it comes to discussing coordination? Uh, why can't we talk about cities? Why can't we talk about towns and villages? And why can't we talk about regions? Why can't we talk about churches and what, or even uh, just universities? Um, why are all of these players just completely sidelined in the way we set up the game? I mean, to me, that's arbitrary. It's an arbitrary uh, way of sidelining them. I accept that all political philosophy must involve a certain simplification, right? You need to consider, to treat certain phenomena as background noise. Mm. They become a form of background noise. But there's a hell of a lot of background noise going on if the only relevant actors are heads of households. Yeah. Um, just we have a, 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 just a couple of more minutes left at most because I know you have to go and catch a plane. Um, but you said in your talk that you take that your case for uh, a kind of a polycentric form of governance to be a perfectionist case, um, which is to say that it's grounded in the, the kind of the ethical good of, of persons. You don't describe it as a, as a liberal case. Uh, and you don't make too much mention to the importance of uh, kind of protecting freedom. It's more about protecting valuable forms of life. Perfectionism is not a very popular or fashionable position in contemporary political theory. Everyone kind of goes out of their way to show that their view is some form of liberalism. Do you take do you take your perfectionism to be um, to be illiberal or certainly at odds with a kind of uh, liberal anti-perfectionism? Well. I think, logically, my position is inconsistent with anti-perfectionist liberalism, yeah. uh, for sure. Though, it, interestingly, it, it actually shares some of the, the underlying concerns of anti-perfectionist liberalism, such as Isaiah Berlin's fear of a big brother state that would be telling us how to live. Um, I think it's a misunderstanding of perfectionism to assume that it endorses a paternalistic kind of big brother state, necessarily. Because it's one thing to affirm that the, the, the end of social development, all around social development, should be uh, human flourishing. And it's quite another thing to say that the, that, that the state should be endorsing a particular model of flourishing. Um, so I think that's an important clarification because my view is that First of all, which I didn't really clarify very well in the talk yesterday, I didn't, that the point didn't come across fully, uh, that my idea of flourishing is, is actually a libertarian ideal of flourishing in the sense that um, freedom and deliberation, um, uh, the agent's own decisions and choices have to be um, part of their own flourishing. In other words, their flourishing has to be shaped by their own agency um, and their own, if you want, a certain form of ra rational mastery on the part of the agent. And that that rational mastery or autonomy is actually part of their flourishing. And that's a Joseph Raz's view of the morality mm. of freedom. And I share that view, which is the, the reason why there are strong liberty-based arguments against certain forms of paternalist intervention, because they can damage the good of autonomy. Because for me, autonomy is part of the human good. Um, and so, um, I guess, so, 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 yes, it's a, it's a perfectionist position, 
but <clears throat> it's a polycentric professional position, meaning that there are many different actors that can assist an individual in um, in attaining his or her flourishing, and no one of those actors has a kind of omnicompetent supervisory role right. over the process. And there are very good prudential reasons to limit the uh, the powers of the state um, that have to do with the fact that it can go badly wrong in its judgments about flourishing. Mm. Um, so the idea of arming the state with with a perfectionist sort of imperative to 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 impose a particular model of flourishing upon everybody, I think is a sovereignist way of thinking. And I think Berlin's critique is implicitly a critique of the sovereign state. It's not a critique of political perfectionism in general. Yes, okay. Uh, I think we better leave it there so that you can get back to Spain. So thank you very much for that, David. Uh, I know I don't speak for myself when I say that that was uh, really interesting and I'm really enjoying uh, reading both of your books when when they're finished and out. Yeah, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the discussion. And thanks, everyone, for listening. 